Listen to all of Wild Cornell Medicine's informative podcasts at wildcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Wild Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today's topic will be new strategies to prevent chemo-related hair loss. My guest today is Dr. Tessa Siegler. Dr. Siegler is the clinical director of the Breast Center at Wild Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. She cares for patients with all stages of breast cancer and conducts research focused on improving quality of life, as well as aspects of disease treatment and prevention. Notably for today's discussion, Dr. Siegler leads several clinical trials designed to provide breast cancer patients with access to the most promising therapeutic options, and she was instrumental in the pilot study that led to the FDA approval of a novel scalp cooling system used to prevent chemotherapy-related hair loss. So Tessa, thank you for being here today um, with us. This is a really uh, important topic, obviously, for patients. I actually just left a patient uh, talking to her about therapy and, and her concerns about hair loss, understandably, were a big part of the discussion. So thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So um, I guess by way of background, how, you know, the oncology is broad. You work in, in breast cancer. Uh, obviously, this is an area that is important to patients but perhaps is under understudied. How did you kind of find yourself uh, focusing in part in this area um, and, and working in this to try to help your patients? It's a good question. You know, I'm a busy medical oncologist. I treat a lot of patients, and I think the focus is always getting the best outcome for the patients. And I had a young patient in the beginning of my career who needed chemotherapy um, for her early stage curable breast cancer. And she came to me saying, I just, I can't, of all the side effects of chemotherapy, hair loss is the most petrifying and seems the most devastating to me. And I just can't undergo it. And she, you know, we spoke about the risks and the problems with that and, you know, how we could ameliorate the situation to allow her to receive this, what I felt was life-saving chemotherapy. And she was an amazing, brilliant young woman. And she did all her research and came, came back to me to say, you know, in Europe for many years, they've been using this thing called a cold cap. And I, re I looked at her, I must've looked at her like she had eight heads. And it was really through her that she introduced this topic of cold caps and um, started us and our program on, you know, a decade of interest and research on this topic. So uh, obviously, uh, this is an important issue for patients, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this, these new strategies and, and how we get there uh, and the impact on patients. But I guess the first question to introduce the, the background of the topic is certain chemotherapy drugs cause hair loss, certain don't kind of explain to our audience a little bit about why chemotherapy or certain chemotherapies cause hair loss and um, how that's connected to their patient therapy. Yeah, so on the most basic level, chemotherapy works by um, preventing rapidly dividing cells from growing. We believe that most cancers are rapidly dividing, and so that's why chemotherapy is effective against um, cancer cells. But hair follicles and hair cells are also rapidly dividing. And so chemotherapy is particularly toxic to those cells, which is why most chemotherapy agents are associated with hair loss. 
So the differences between certain drugs that don't cause it and certain do, it's just a matter of the mechanism of action of the chemotherapy primarily? Exactly. Okay. So, um, you know, patients often ask also, and I'm sure you have your own stories around this from the standpoint of, well, I didn't lose my hair or I really lost my hair a lot. And does that mean it's working or not working? Not a lot of correlation with efficacy. Is that is that your impression as well? Yeah, that's well? absolutely true. So some chemotherapy agents do cause hair loss, some don't cause hair loss. And um, the degree of hair loss that a woman or a person experiences is not related to the effectiveness of the chemotherapy. Great. So uh, obviously, uh, this is a, a major issue, and I'm sure there have been a variety of different attempts to uh, minimize chemotherapy-related hair loss, which in my experience has largely been around changing the drug, the chemotherapy itself. In other words, you know, developing a new area, uh, a, a new type of drug uh, in the same class that perhaps could be as effective, but um, but doesn't cause hair loss. It seems to me like in some cases that works, but in other cases you're still uh, compromising efficacy if you substitute a new drug in. And I know there have been some some examples of doing that in breast cancer um, that sometimes have, have swapped in new drugs, but sometimes haven't. Is that fair to say? Fair to say. You know, there are situations where it's perfectly appropriate to choose one drug over the other based on which drug may or may not cause hair loss. But for many women, especially for um, the bulk of women with early stage breast cancer, the chemotherapy programs we have do cause hair loss. And it really wouldn't make sense to substitute other drugs for those drugs or to compromise the, the efficacy of the treatment and the potential for a cure um, to minimize hair loss. So I think it's important for patients to understand that um, all chemotherapy is not the same in this regard. They should talk to their doctor about the issue, but the idea of substituting in something with less hair loss as far as the therapeutic drug um, sometimes is appropriate, but but often is not. And so that brings us to the scenario where um, we need to use a drug for the best uh, cancer-related outcomes that causes hair loss and, and um, the strategies to uh, to kind of ameliorate that. And so that brings us to scalp cooling therapy. And can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, this seems to be the approach that's the farthest along as evidenced by the fact that it's, it's gaining acceptance. Um, but how does, how does this work? Right. So the scalp cooling was actually introduced in Europe and it's been used in Europe since the 1970s. And it's only in the past several years that it's really gained um, more widespread attention in the U.S., the idea of scalp cooling is actually a very simple one. Um, if you freeze the scalp and make the hair follicles really, really cold, you cause the blood vessels in the hair follicle to constrict to narrow. And that reduces the ability of the chemotherapy to penetrate into those hair follicles and thus prevents the chemotherapy from causing hair loss. And also the very cold, temper the very cold temperatures from scalp cooling, is, in a sense, put the hair follicles to sleep and stop them from being able to... Um, be affected by the chemotherapy. So, so what does that mean practically for a patient? What what does when when your patients and you have a lot of experience um, with having patients go through this this treatment? What on the day of treatment is kind of the practicalities of a patient in setting all this up, and and how does it affect their treatment itself? Obviously, when patients are getting chemotherapy, uh, it's a busy day, a lot of different treatments. They're anxious. They have a lot going on. Um, tell us about the, the mechanics of this from the patient's perspective. So there is no doubt about it that using scalp cooling is a big hassle. There are two types of scalp cooling devices. There's a manual type 
and the more recently automated type. Um, the manual type is essentially a gel cap that patients wear on their heads um, before chemotherapy, during chemotherapy, and after chemotherapy. And that's important because obviously scalp cooling then takes up a lot more, ex a lot of extra time. Um, these manual caps have to be frozen the night before um, to extremely cold temperatures, temperatures that a regular freezer can't get to. So um, in order to use the, the caps, one needs a specialized freezer and or dry ice brought to the, to the center. Um, as soon as the caps are placed on the head, they lose some of their coldness. And so these caps have to be replaced every 30 minutes during the treatment. So it's quite a laborious process. Um, the caps are put on 30 minutes before treatment, rotated every 30 minutes during treatment, and worn for two to three hours after treatment. So do you have to have somebody with you that's kind of doing all of this for you? I know the nurses giving the chemo are obviously busy with making that go smoothly. How does that work for most people? Yeah, it's absolutely essential to have, um, we call them cappers, <laughs> and that capper can be a trained individual who's used to doing it, or um, many of our patients have um, family members or friends who do it for them. Mm -hmm. The automated process is, as it sounds, much easier. It's automated. Um, the automated, the machines um, are essentially um, caps fitted to a small refrigeration unit and coolant is run through a hose and that cools the cap. Um, the um, machines don't require the caps to be changed at all. So a person puts it on her, his or her head um, at the start of um, before chemotherapy and wears, wears it throughout. Um, the machine versions are not nearly as cold as the, as the, um, the caps. So, Tessa, I know that you and uh, the Breast Center here at Wild Cornell and New York Presbyterian have been amongst the pioneers of this. Roughly how many patients uh, have you treated? I know you have a lot of experience with it. Gosh, we've treated hundreds of patients really? with scalp yeah. cooling at our center. Uh -huh. And at this point, and, and we'll talk a little bit about what's the, the FDA has approved, but is this available at many other centers or it's increasing? Or um, if people are in a community center, or is this something that if they ask their doctor about, they're likely to be able to get? Or is it really just in a few places at this point? Um, it's cold cap therapy is gaining a, a lot of popularity and quickly around the country. Um, but it is not nearly available everywhere. Okay. It's also not, as of yet, covered by insurance. Mm -hmm. And we're working hard to make that happen in the near future. And what's, do you have a ballpark of the cost, roughly? Yeah, so as you can imagine, it, it ranges across the city, across the country and between cities. In the New York area, caps are, are very costly. Mm -hmm. And a course of treatment um, with CAPS can range anywhere from $2,000 to $5,000. Okay. So so obviously, uh, in making that decision and perhaps finding a center that has this available, the, the obvious question is, well, how well does it work? What's the chance that someone is going to have partial hair loss? Um, what's the chance that someone's going to have total hair loss or, you know, and I get that there's probably, uh, some rigorous or semi-rigorous ways of measuring the degree of hair loss to tell a patient, yes, this is going to work well enough that it makes sense to consider doing. How, how do you, uh, kind of explain that to a patient in general? So the success of cold caps really depends on the type of chemotherapy. Um, and so the, Anthracyclines are a class of chemotherapy often used in breast cancer um, for which the caps don't work as well. For the common breast cancer treatment programs, we quote a rate 
of at our center of about 80% success rate. And success can be defined in many ways. The way I like to define it is um, whether or not a person feels the need to wear a head covering or wig mm -hmm. um, during or at the end of treatment. There have been two prospective clinical trials which have rigorously evaluated the efficacy of these scalp cooling, of two scalp cooling devices. And in these trials, they measured success as a rate of hair loss of less than 50%. So for women, these were studies done in women with breast cancer, and those women who were able to keep 50 or more percent of their hair, of their hair were considered um, to have success with the scalp cooling. And in these studies, um, each with over 100 patients with breast cancer treated with chemotherapy, the success rates were in the range of 50 to 60%. So would you say that most patients who choose to go through this are, are more or less happy with the results and look at it as a good experience from the standpoint of at least that part of their treatment? Or what's, what's kind of the general feedback you get from patients um, on this aspect of their care? Uniformly, we've noticed that patients who choose to undergo scalp cooling, regardless of the results, are really unbelievably grateful for having had the opportunity to do that. Um, I think being able to take control of a devastating side effect is very empowering for women. For women who are able to keep their hair during chemotherapy, it's, you know, it allows it allows them to maintain their sense of self-esteem, their sense of well-being, um, and confidence, as well as privacy during what can be a really difficult time. Women choose to undergo scalp cooling for many reasons. Um, a lot of our patients who have young children at home like to uh, protect the children from the fact that they're undergoing treatment. We have women who are continue to work full-time and don't want their jobs to be jeopardized in any way because they're perceived as being sick. We have women who are dating who hair loss would be you know, a big problem for, for their social life. So from from the standpoint of my understanding is that there's been some, um, for lack of a better term, clearance of this by the FDA of at least one of these approaches. Can you tell us a little bit about what that what that means or uh, how that impacts the availability of this sort of treatment? Yeah, so based on these two prospective studies um, that were published in one of our big medical journals last year, the FDA did provide clearance for two devices, the Dignicap and the Paxman device, first for women with undergoing chemotherapy um, for breast cancer, and now that clearance has been expanded to all patients with solid tumors. So you, there are, you, you mentioned a number of areas where this may be appropriate to consider. Obviously, there are at least theoretically some diseases where this is not an appropriate strategy, and that may be because it's not going to work or not going to be effective, but also that it may potentially interfere with or impact the treatment of the underlying disease. What are the current thoughts about that? And I know that there's research going on there, and we have talked about in our lymphoma program at least exploring the potential for this uh, type of technology for some of our patients, and that's all at an early stage. But what are at least the concerns about uh, including some patients in, in this form of therapy at yeah. this point in time? The biggest fear of scalp cooling is that perhaps if they are cells cancer cells that are in the scalp, by limiting chemotherapy penetration to the scalp, you might not be targeting those cells. And it's a, it's a theoretical concern that um, physicians have had over many years. 
um, for at least for solid tumors, we now have results of two large studies suggesting that scalp metastases or cancer cells coming back in the scalp um, has not has not there's not a higher incidence of that among individuals treated with scalp cooling, and we have a recent big analysis called a meta-analysis where data from thousands of women are pooled together. And really that meta-analysis was very reassuring to us in the breast cancer world that the incidence of scalp metastases are very low to begin with, way less than 1%. And that rate is not increased by the use of scalp cooling. So as of now, I think then the, the recommendations are, at least until we have more information, that patients with leukemia and and most likely patients with lymphoma, other blood cancers, those are the key patients where this would be excluded largely um, until we have more data. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Great. Great. So so what do you think the, the future is going to be uh, from the standpoint of obviously cancer care is evolving, our drugs are evolving, presumably we'll have more treatments that will not uh, have uh, hair loss as a side effect. But do you think that this is going to make its way into the mainstream more and that more and more patients with more and more uh, disease types will be at least candidates for this sort of therapy on a more routine basis? Absolutely. I think scalp cooling is hair to stay. <laughs> um, scalp cooling is not going anywhere. Um, patients more and more are going to demand it. And um, I think physicians and cancer centers across the country are going to have to um, change their practices to allow scalp cooling to happen. Well, thanks for uh, advancing uh, this this area. And I just before we wrap up, I just would um, I I know that a big focus of of your practice and and some of your research is around um, bringing uh, new options towards to patients, supportive care, uh, wellness, quality of life, uh, and aspects of that in your practice at the Breast Center at Wild Cornell in New York Presbyterian. Uh, and, you know, I'm interested to hear your thoughts uh, just briefly on kind of what are some of the other things that you and your group are doing. Uh, obviously, hair loss is part of, uh, obviously, a difficult part of the cancer experience, but other things that you're doing that you think can make a big difference for patients as they go through uh, their treatment program, whether it's breast cancer or other, other malignancies. I think more and more, particularly in the field of breast cancer, where we have so many long-term survivors, we are focusing our attention to quality of life, um, both during treatment and beyond. The Cornell Breast Center has um, a full uh, a staff that includes social workers, nurse navigators, massage therapists. We have a complementary medicine center available to patients with acupuncture and massage and you know a whole host of complementary therapies to help improve their quality of life and symptoms during chemotherapy and afterwards as well. Well, I want to thank you for joining us uh, here today. This is, It's been really great. We, we've, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about how we can cure more patients, and, and obviously that's important, but I think uh, helping patients through the treatment experience and, and uh, you know, making it easier and less challenging for, for patients to deal with some of these uh, difficult side effects is obviously very important. And I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts on this uh, with us today, as well as all of your work in this area. My pleasure. Thanks so much. So this uh, concludes our episode for today. I want to invite the audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, 
or online at wildcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, and topics you'd like to see us cover more in-depth in the future. That's it for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. Are you or a loved one suffering from the painful side effects of cancer and cancer treatment? Swollen joints, back pain, and surgical complications are, unfortunately, common. Be sure to listen to our podcast about rehabilitation medicine, Back to Health. You'll learn how rehabilitation medicine can help promote wellness during and after cancer treatment. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, Podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.